I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Just a caveat before I begin, this is, my thoughts are not as worked out as I normally like them, so I'm going to share them with you anyway, but um, here they are. Um, I, the readings at this time of year turn to the end times. That's why we leave the hangings red for this last month of ordinary time. Uh, red symbolizes fire and blood and the Holy Spirit, and all these uh, come through in what's called the eschatological literature of the Bible. And certainly our Christian tradition is steeped in eschatological literature. It's both in the Old Testament and in the New. And there is a sense that there is something critical about this notion of a Messiah coming again at some point in the future that lends a particular character to our faith. And uh, 2,000 years after Christ, with various movements of you know, waiting for the end times and Christ to come, um, my solution to that particular um, uh, set of questions is that there's something metaphorical about the end times that applies at all times. So I've, I've stopped looking for a date on the calendar, if I ever did look for one, um, and I'm starting to ask the question, uh, what does that end times teaching teach us about the quality of the life of faith in the everyday present moment? And, and where I go uh, with that line of thinking is that the, this notion of the end times has two dimensions to it which exist in some tension with each other, but they exist alongside each other. There's both a now part of this, uh, there's a now dimension and there's a not yet dimension. So the end times are here and always have been ever since Jesus rose from the dead. And so the Jesus rising from the dead inaugurated a sense of the reign of God has come here and now, and you can participate in it mystically. At the, on the other hand, there is a not yet dimension to the end times where the end times are never fully realized in our lifetimes and in our experience. So there's, a, there's always a, a, a contingent quality to the reign of God as we experience it on earth. So there's, it's always incomplete, it's partial. You get hints of it, uh, experiences of it, touches of it, um, but it's never 100%. There's always something that is still ahead of us. So you have these two elements that are both true, and certainly my theology for many years has been to try to honor and respect both of those dimensions. So when I come to today's readings, as we turn to these thoughts of the end times, where I get is a particular emphasis on the not yet side of that equation. And so there are other times when I want to preach to you and say the kingdom of God is here. It is amongst you. If you just open your eyes, you can just see it. And that's true. But it's also important not to forget that the kingdom of God is not yet here. And don't be fooled into thinking it's here. And don't get impatient and try to force it to come in a fullness for which it is not yet ready. So, three readings. You have Haggai talking to the Israelites 
when they were restored to Israel after their exile in Babylon. Persian Empire comes along, the Edict of Restoration happens, Cyrus says, Israelites, go home, build your country up, you can, just as long as you pay your taxes, you can be your own culture and people and have your religion. And the Israelites were delighted, this is exciting and wonderful, and there they are, you know, the Emperor Cyrus has passed on, it's now Darius's reign, and they're still looking around Israel and everything is rubble, it's a complete mess. And they say, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And the message of Haggai is, don't give up. Don't despair. It's still in front of you. The fact that it hasn't been achieved yet is not a barrier. Don't give up. So the first one, the first point about the kingdom of God being in front of us is don't give up. It's, and and in, the, in the struggle for values, peace, justice, harmony of human beings, it's easy to give up. We look at the way the world is and we say, is this it? Or even worse, you elect the guy that you want and then it doesn't turn out the way they promised. And everyone is devastated. They said they would make everything better and it's not. Well, don't give up. The message of Haggai is that the Lord is with you in the work. And you think of them one generation after, or not even one generation, into the restoration. They're trying to rebuild the temple. The temple, Solomon's temple, that was a wonder of the ancient world, covered in gold, amazing, beautiful, fabulous. And, and it's going to take them many generations to rebuild the temple. And it's going to be smaller than the Solomon's one. Um, and Haggai's message is, don't give up, don't despair. The, the latter glory will be greater than the former. And from the perspective of 2,500 years on, we are able to say the latter glory is not measured in silver and gold, but in something in people's hearts. The glory of the kingdom of Israel is in the spiritual legacy that they left for Jew, Christian, and Muslim that carries on to this day and has taken over the world. So the glory of the latter temple, but the latter temple is in the heart. So from the perspective where they're sitting in, they, number one, don't have the framework to see it. They think that building a temple looks like silver and gold and looks like this physical thing that we're trying to rebuild. The fact that God has something completely different in mind has not yet occurred to them. So when we are in our devastations, when we are in those places where we said, we've come to this place and it looks like a wasteland, I thought it was going to be what God was bringing me into, the message of Haggai is, the kingdom of God is still ahead of you. It means it's not here, but it means it's still ahead. And I am with you in the work, says the Lord. So as we, as we keep that not yet quality of the end times in our mind, we are still in the business of the work of the kingdom, and God is with us in that work. The, uh, the second reading is Paul writing to the Thessalonians. And it's very tempting to go political in this reading because we have a, a, an antichrist figure who comes and sits in the place of God um, and claims to be everything you're looking for. And so I won't get specifically political, but I will say that it's our impatience for the kingdom of God, our, our unwillingness to let it stay not yet, that allows us to get suckered in every time by people who come and hold themselves out as our messiahs whether political or psychological or some, uh, some other thing. 
Um, I can speak to this personally. When I was a young man, fired up in faith, curious about learning about the mystery of the universe, I thought that going to seminary would unlock all of those things. Every single professor at seminary would be a Yoda, and I would sit at their feet, and they would unlock the mysteries of the universe to me. And when I actually met them, it was a little bit of a disappointment. Um, now, did I learn something from them? Yes. But the kingdom of God was still ahead. And in fact, I've come to value that disillusionment itself because it taught me that there is no Yoda. There's, you know, if you meet the Buddha on the path, kill him. I, I get that now. There is no Buddha waiting to just unlock everything for me. There's a process that only I can take. And my mentors and teachers are never going to be it, but they will have something to contribute. But but in the devastation of seminary, I discovered that the Lord was with me in the work. And so the kingdom of God is still ahead of me. I still don't get it. I don't get my own religion at the level that I wish I did. But I'm in the process. I know more today than I knew then. And, um, and I've been teachers to others, feet of clay and all. And thank God I know that I'm not Yoda. But that but it becomes about the work. And knowing that the kingdom of God is still ahead of me has been a gift because it, 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 it releases me from the burden of trying to find it here and now. The final thing is a, a little note on marriage, which is kind of funny with our meeting next week. Um, but again, it puts a contingent quality or a, 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 through a glass darkly on our discussions of what the right arrangement is. So it was a technical argument against the resurrection saying, well, Moses said that if a, a, a woman dies without a child from her husband, or a, man, a husband dies without giving his wife a child, the husband's brother has to marry the wife and give a child, and that becomes the child to the brother, and that way the bloodline carries on. This was, the, this was their mechanism for ensuring the continuity of family lines. And then they came up with this, this hypothetical to trap Jesus and prove there was no resurrection, because if there's a resurrection, she's married to all these different men, and clearly that we couldn't have, you know, um, what's the poly polygyny? Couldn't have that. Polygamy is fine, but polygyny is not okay. Therefore, there's a contradiction and it doesn't count. So uh, I'm sorry you're not following my, my little legal joke, but never mind. Um, there's patriarchy in it, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, but, the, uh, but they tried to trap saying, she can't be married to all these guys at once, can she? And the response of Jesus is, that whole marriage stuff is just on this side of the grave. If you're talking about the resurrection, that is the fullness of the kingdom. The rules are different. It's a whole different ball of wax. So don't get... Go get obsessed with the stuff on this side of the grave, on this side of the parousia. Uh, allow that not yet quality to remain there and lend a little lightness to your stressing and fretting about the stuff on this side of the grave. All things will come to their fruition, but in God's time. So the last thing I will say, and I might have more to say about it in this season, is that um, as we look to this end time theology, we really start to appreciate why the, the cardinal virtue of the early church was not humility, that was later. The early church, the cardinal virtue was patience because their experience was of, of living under persecution, waiting for the second coming, literally, and seeing the world going to hell in a handbasket and Christians being treated abominably. 
And so the cardinal virtue for Christians of that age was patience. Don't give up. Hang in. Allow God to work in God's time and don't force it. So on this Remembrance Day weekend, as we also think about war and peace, I'm also brought to mind that war is, an, it ultimately comes from fear and impatience. That, that we are going to make the world right, and so we are going to resort to force. And so there, there are different reasons to resort to force. Impatience is not the only one. But there is a quality of impatience that, that moves us into coercion a little too quickly. And it, it also that notion of the Antichrist, when we become convinced that the fullness of the kingdom is here and we have to follow whoever it is that is going to usher it in, we become willing to do violence. And so when we say, lest we forget, we need to remember those, the, those learnings of the great wars and, and recognize that war comes from places that we need to cut off before it gets that far. We need to look at the causes of war. We need to look at the injustices that give rise to it. And also the, the, the movements within human society that get us running after our fake messiahs and being willing to do violence in their name. So the kingdom of God has not come. Anyone that comes saying, I am he, don't trust them. And allow this notion that the kingdom of God is always in front of us to just put a little question mark on our certainties as we continue forward seeking the kingdom that is with us but is also ahead of us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>